we bid you welcome. Also our listeners, we bid you welcome, praying that our Lord Jesus, who is the Lord of peace, that he himself give you his peace, no matter what happens today, no matter what's in for you today. The Lord be with you all and give you his peace, his peace. That's my prayer. And for myself also. Let's turn to Matthew 19. We have arrived at Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 1. This is a sermon on, really on divorce. And the earlier teachings and discussions of the Lord Jesus, they all took place in Capernaum, where the Lord, where he had been relatively safe. But now he was leaving Capernaum, and he was traveling toward Judah and Jerusalem. Before we go to Matthew, let's read from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, or as the NIV says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Again, in a new international version, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He didn't hesitate. He set out resolutely. And the Lord traveled through Perea. That's a region east of the Jordan River. In Mark 10, verse 1, it says, He came into the borders of Judea and behind the Jordan. So that's where it is. The Greek says, the Atu, along or alongside the Jordan River. In this way, he was able to avoid Samaria as the Jews were wont to do in those days. And actually, the Lord would not return to Galilee again until after his resurrection. We read about that in Matthew 28, verse 7. It says, and this is here, the angel speaking who was sitting on the tomb where the ladies went, the women went to the, find the body of Jesus, which they hadn't been able to do earlier. It says, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and that he is going to Galilee to meet him there. Let's go to verse 1 in Matthew chapter 19. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And by taking this route, they would avoid Samaria where the Lord had ministered before. And then they passed through a territory where he had not been before. But crowds followed him all the way from Galilee and caught up with them, with the group. G. Campbell Morgan in the Gospel according to Matthew points out that the crowd was made up out of four classes. Those who came with a need, bringing their sick. Those who came to trap and test the Lord. 
Thirdly, those who came in admiration. And fourthly, at least one with a sincere question. And a parallel account to Matthew 19 is found in Mark chapter 10, the verses 1 through 31, if you want to double-check it. Jot it down, make a note of it, but only Matthew records that the Lord's ministry included healing the sick, as recorded in verse 2. It says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Gospel of Matthew is well known for its emphasis on the Lord's teaching ministry. Remember the Sermon on the Mount and all these other teachings, parables. And Mark concentrates, uh, he concentrates more on the Lord's miracles. But in this case, right here, it is Matthew who highlights the healing, while Mark, in turn, stresses his teaching. As is recorded in Mark 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus then went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. So again, the religious leaders, they come to the Lord, and both Mark and Matthew record the question of the Pharisees, how they asked him about divorce. And the Lord again states God's ideal for marriage and the grounds for divorce. Verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, opinions were divided. The Jews saw marriage as a sacred responsibility, and these sacred responsibilities rendered decent and praiseworthy benefits because under the law and later during the gospel system, women's rights were far better than those of the heathen cultures. Matthew's gospel in Matthew 5 verse 31 also mentions divorce. But the, right there, there was no discussion about the legality of divorce. And it was completely accepted, what was said. But the question here was, what were the grounds to get a divorce? Now, Arno C. Gablin, in the Gospel of Matthew, he writes, and I quote, Two great opinions divided the Pharisees about divorce. Some held to the views of Hillel, and the others to the views of Shammai. And, of course, there were other views. But Hillel had taught, we stick it to those two, Hillel had taught, the most important ones, that indeed for almost every cause, that's what Hillel says, a wife may be put away. 
Any right we care not to fill our space with a record of all the different causes for divorce and the rules which the elders had laid down and which, at least among the extremely orthodox Jews, are still conscientiously followed. He writes, the school of Hillel declared openly and practiced this, that if the wife cooked her husband's food badly by over-salting or over-roasting it, she is to be put away. And the school of Shammai, to which the other Pharisees held, permitted no divorces except in the case of adultery. And this will shed more light on the temptation of these Pharisees and the trap they were planning to lay for the Lord as Stanley M. Horton in the Complete Biblical Library writes, I quote, the Pharisees who approached Jesus were seeking to entrap him or entangle him in one of their disputes. They had either been sent from Jerusalem or they were local religious leaders. And then there was R.C.H. Lenski who writes in the interpretation of Matthew's gospel. He says, behind the Pharisees' question was a controversy in different schools of thought among the Jews, we already mentioned, in which the school of Shammai was strict and the school of Hillel, which permitted divorce for almost any cause, was more lax and had been followed by many of the Jews. The debate hinges on Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where divorce was permitted if the husband found some uncleanness in her, which could be interpreted as almost any sort of disfavor, he writes. Jesus avoided the trap of the Pharisees by appealing to the original purpose of marriage. Matthew seems to notice the challenge the Pharisees put before the Lord. And in a way, he records that the Pharisees did this to tempt the Lord, to trick him. And in fact, trying to put him in opposition to the Mosaic system, see, the law of Moses clearly did provide for divorce, but they wanted to raise the tricky question what exactly the valid the legal and the lawful causes for divorce were. They wanted to get to the nitty-gritty. And maybe some in the crowd had heard the Sermon on the Mount when the Lord had said that divorce should only be limited to cases where there was fornication, which was stricter than the law of Moses. But the law also, I'm sorry, but the Lord also appealed to the law of creation that God had made both male and female and had ordained that marriage should make them one flesh. 
Let's go to verse 4. And he answered, the Lord answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Scripture teaches that in the beginning God created one man and one woman, man having one wife, which shows God's intent that marriage should be monogamous, which literally tells us one wife, as also backed up by Genesis 2, verse 24. And then he, in verse 4, he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he, which made them at the beginning, made them male and female? And said, verse 5, for this cause, Genesis 2, verse 24, pointing to God, having made male and female, and asking, Have ye not read that for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Now this verse has been so much kicked around by both husband and wife in favor and defense of themselves, with many truly wondering what God meant with what he said in Genesis 2 verse 24, and turned it every which way to their own advantage. For this cause shall man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Have you not read that? But verse 6 clearly states, Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So this scripture clears things up. these words that are a revelation from God himself. Let's, let's look a bit closer. When the Pharisees brought up that the law of Moses was more tolerant, more open-minded, the Lord answered, indicating that this tolerance was a compromise to the hardness of their hearts, but that this was not God's intention of marriage. And while they were arguing from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, they were neglecting Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Mark in his gospel records more conversation on this subject. And interesting is that the Lord said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. See this. God did not say whom God has joined together, but what. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's what the Lord said. The what is, not the person, 
but the marriage relationship. And because God made the marriage relationship, the bond and the God-ordained marriage should be remembered and celebrated and lived in God's name by both partners. Verse 7, And they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? They brought up Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 again, When the man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. The Pharisees quoted this, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, arguing that if it were a command by Moses, they should and could challenge the Lord to compare his authority with that of Moses, wondering whether he would agree or go against the authority of Moses. And if a woman obtained such a certificate of divorce, was she free to marry, to remarry, to remarry? But the Lord answered them that their question had nothing to do with the command, but with the resolving of a hopeless situation, that Moses did not command divorce, but allowed it. Because the ideal, the marriage, had been forsaken, had been ditched. And the law of Moses had adapted itself to the human sinful condition. In the beginning, there was no divorce and no polygamy. But later, people were so far removed from God that they were incapable of obeying God's original command. And if there were no divorce law, a wife ran the risk of being mistreated or even killed so the husband could be free of her. This writes Horton, Stanley M. Horton, in the Complete Biblical Library. And under such circumstances, it was better to allow divorce. The attitude to it marriage had changed, and now divorce was granted because of the hardness of heart. That's what the Lord is saying. Verse 8, from the beginning it was not so, implies that it still is not so, that God's plan for man, woman, and marriage has not changed. He says unto them, verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And sure, in the beginning, marriage was seen as permanent and unbreakable. But then later, because of the hardness of the human heart, divorce was accepted, as recorded in verse 8, as the Lord said that, Moses did that in recognition of your hard and evil hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. 
if men and women would see marriage as God does, a lot of heartbreak would be avoided. The saying is true that man's hardness of heart brings hard circumstances. Mm-hmm. Verse 9. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife except it be for fornication and shall marry another committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away does commit adultery. Horton writes, It seems apparent that the disciples were enslaved to their Jewish way of thinking. It was so difficult to dissolve the heavy yoke of marriage, the reason that it probably would be best not to marry at all. Instead, they should have reasoned, how can I appropriate this divine institution to benefit my wife, my children, and myself, my fellow human beings, and the kingdom of God, says Horton. At this point, the conversation apparently moved indoors, where the disciples questioned, yeah, questioned Jesus further. Those of their generation, even though they were the disciples of the Lord, they saw the difficulty of divorce that only would be approved of on the grounds of unfaithfulness of the wife and making the whole marriage an unacceptable union. But what the disciples really were saying was that they rather preferred an easier way and the way that had come, had become a tradition among the Jews of getting a divorce when the wife was no longer attractive to the husband. That was what they were thinking. And then also the Lord's answer puzzled the disciples when they had come into the house, as recorded in verse 10, the disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry. The Living Bible translates this, If that is how it is, it's better not to marry. Mark in chapter 10 also records that the disciples talk with the Lord more about this issue. Go to verse 11 in Matthew 19. But he, the Lord, said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. When the disciples said, Well, in that case, better not to marry. The Lord says, Not given for everyone. Not everyone, actually, literally, what the Lord says, not everyone has the gift of remaining single. He said, all men cannot receive this saying, the Lord said. And the, the word receive, it's good to go now to the Greek and look at the verse, at the word, I mean. The word is choreo, and means to make room for. That's the word the Lord uses, make space for. It comes from the word the original word, chora, that means place. And also in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, 
this term is rendered in the New International Version to make room for, to make room for, to give place or to make space for. So receive here, in theory, involves more than a rational acknowledgement or even choice. It involves a moral act of the will. Also the word that the Lord uses, the word dedotai, in to whom it is given or to whom it has been granted. This word points to God as the giver. And just as only believers understand the Christian ethic, so also special gifts are understood only by those who are open to receive them. And this is important. That's what J. Vernon McGee through the Bible writes. He said this is important, especially in our day. He writes, in the verse that follows, our Lord puts down a great principle. Even now the Roman Catholic Church is wrestling with this problem. Let's go to verse 12. The Lord said, For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he that is able to receive it let him receive it. Not everyone is obligated to be married, and some obviously to fulfill their calling can't be. Verse 12, for some, for there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. These are some men and women who do not need to marry. They get along very well by themselves, but that is not for everybody. And we shouldn't pick on other people or make fun of them if they are different from us. And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men because some churches make a rule that folk in certain positions are not married. And McGee writes, they have no right to do that. And the verse goes on, and then, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And McGee writes, I know a eunuch who went to the mission field, and before she left, I talked to her. I said, look, your chances are nil for getting married out there. And she said, I've thought that through, and I'm willing to make that sacrifice. She made it voluntarily. And somebody says, do you think that the preacher ought to get married? Or do you think the priest should be married? 
May I say to you, writes McGee, this is a place where God puts down a principle. He says that it is up to the individual. We have to make that decision for ourselves. You know, the sacred institution of marriage has never been so misused as in our day. We're pretty corrupt in morals. Gablin writes, divorces and scandals are becoming almost fashionable. The frightful, the frightful increase in unlawful divorces and prostitution is alarming to the moralist and to the reformer. We know, however, that it will be so in the last days. For he, the Lord, said, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be when the Son of Man cometh. He rewrote this just a little bit. So to recap, man-made celibacy is a wicked doctrine contrary to scripture. Yet in he that is able to receive it, let him receive it, as the Lord spoke in verse 12, is, is then something to be received from God, a gift from above. The grace and the power of God can lift some to whom it is given above the natural things of life for good or for a time. To Paul, undoubtedly it was given. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, and the verses 28 through 32. Let's go through it together. He writes, I wish everyone could get along without marrying, just as I do. But we are not all the same. God gives some the gift of a husband, a wife, and others he gives the gift of being able to stay happily unmarried. But if you men decide to go ahead anyway and get married now, it is all right. And if a girl gets married in times like these, it is no sin. However, marriage will bring extra problems that I wish you didn't have to face right now. The important thing to remember is that our remaining time is very short, and so are our opportunities for doing the Lord's work. For that reason, those who have wives should stay as free as possible for the Lord. Happiness or sadness or wealth should not keep anyone from doing God's work. Those in frequent contact with the exciting things the world offers should make good use of their opportunities without stopping to enjoy them, for the world in its present form will soon be gone. In all you do, 
I want you to be free from worry. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. God bless you.